0: Okay, here's an exclusive. We are listening to a song right now that hasn't even been released yet. This is the song Satanic Cowboy Surf Rock Mayhem. It is by The Void Surfers, which is a band that I really like. And it's from their new album coming out next month. Here in a few weeks, in fact. The album is called Satanic Cowboy Surf Rock Mayhem. It's the title track. I dig it a lot. They gave us permission to play this on the show. You can find them at the... Voidsurfers.bandcamp.com Go check it out Go check out all of their albums You can pre-order the digital album right now For 5 euros You get this, you get a whole bunch of other great stuff It's a great band So big thanks to them for letting us play This song on episode 562 Of the podcast devoted to the classic And uh, sometimes not so classic Genre cinema of yesteryear It's Monster Kid Radio And it's me, your writer, host, producer Derek M. Cook Welcome to this week's show. This week's show is a little on the devilish side. Didn't really plan it this way, but you know, sometimes happy accidents happen when putting together the podcast. This week, we have an author coming to the show who has just recently released a book called The Satanic Gangs of New York, and we're going to talk about the movie To the Devil, A Daughter. We're talking about Frank Schildener, and we're talking about a Hammer film, a rather notorious Hammer film, And I just want to kind of get this out of the way up front, because Frank and I do talk about this again when we get to that part of the episode, you'll hear it to the devil. A daughter is a little on the notorious side for the wrong reasons. In fact, when I sat down to watch the movie for this episode of the podcast, I considered pulling the plug. It was a first time watch for me. And I thought, you know, it's a hammer film. I've always said hammer films have a place here on monster kid radio let's check this movie out. Even though I kind of knew going in, there was going to be something I didn't need to see. And, uh, you know, it wasn't just that. There were a few other things here as well. However, I decided to stick to my hammer guns. And besides, I really wanted to talk to Frank. And he had already made plans to record as well. And, you know, I had waited to the last minute to watch the episode or the movie, excuse me. So here's the deal. Please know. This episode's main conversation deals with some things that we don't normally talk about on Monster Kid Radio. I don't know if you share the episode with any family members. I don't know if I need to really issue any trigger warnings or anything like that. But I'll just flat out say it. And, you know, we say it again in the conversation with Frank. This movie features full frontal nudity of a minor. As much as we can rely on the, well, it was a different time excuse, or how standards were different at that time, or whatever. The bottom line is, there is a teenager who is naked in this movie, and uh, it's, it's a female. It's Natasha Kinski, and it's uncomfortable, especially when you realize just how old she is. Frank and I do talk about this, as well as a few other things that happened in the movie that did make us cringe for all the wrong reasons. However, as I said, it's a Hammer film, and Hammer's always got a place here on MKR. At least, classic Hammer does. So, yeah, just so everybody knows what they're getting into with this. Now, because of this, because of the content in the movie... Frank and I kind of went old-school Monster Kid Radio on this. We really kind of broke down the plot. Lately, you know, and actually I've been trying to avoid this because, really, you can watch the movie on your own. We try not to do a beat-by-beat, point-by-point plot breakdown on the podcast anymore. It just doesn't seem to be the format that works for me, for my podcast. However, in this particular case, because of the kind of movie it is, because it might not be seen by some folks for those very reasons... We do break down the story point by point, beat by beat, and share our thoughts along the way. I just want everybody to know. That said, we also have some really good stuff I'm excited to share. <laughs> we have got Kenny's look at famous monsters of filmland. We've got Mark Matsky's beta capsule review and a little bit of mail. We'll dive into that right now.
1: It's time. It's time. Yes, it's time. It's, it's time, time for Monster, Monster Kid Radio, Radio
0: Mail Call. I got another email from friend of the show, guest of the show, Tom Greganis from Go Forth and Game at GoForthAndGame.com. He writes in, Hey man, I finally listened to you and Steve talk about The Mummy. What a great show. This is my favorite Karloff role. He is so amazing and otherworldly. You really believe he is not human. I'm glad you pointed out the fact that no one could touch him. It didn't occur to me until you said it. As to Steve's statement, this is a better film than Dracula, I say, you are correct, sir. This is a better film all around from start to finish. Dracula's first act is amazing, but the second two have their issues. The Mummy is solid throughout. I appreciated the discussion about Karl Freund. I need to go watch Metropolis. The cinematography here is incredible. Of the three major Universal movies, this is probably my favorite. Thanks for the great episode. So this is an older episode that he's referring to. Actually, one that is, oh my goodness. An episode that came out in 2016, episode 261. You can find it over at monsterkidradio.net on our website. You can find all the episodes over there. Dig through the archives, go to March of 2016, and you'll find it. And, you know, I I go back and forth. I really, really like Dracula. For a while, I was like, I don't know. It's a little too stagey for me, but... Over the years, I've kind of grown to appreciate that. And, you know, it stands to reason, I mean, it makes sense. The Mummy did come out a year after Dracula and Frankenstein. So it felt like the Universal Machine had kind of worked out some of their kinks in terms of uh, any production issues they might have had. Plus, The Mummy's basically a retelling of the Dracula story, just swapping out a vampire for a mummy, at least in some ways it is. They even use the same opening music in the film. So there's a lot of similarities there. So maybe because this is a a second round for the production company, it comes across a little better for some folks. Karloff is amazing though. And it's really hard to say anything disparaging about Karloff. You put Karloff in a movie, I'm going to love it. You put Dracula, excuse me. (laughs) Well, if you put Dracula in a movie, I'm going to love it too. You put Legosi in a film, I'm going to love it. You referred to this being your favorite of the three major universals so are you referring to Dracula and Frankenstein and this being the third? I've always considered the Wolfman as the next of the big three, the trinity, so to speak, of universal monsters. But I suppose an argument could be made because this came out in 32, a good nine years before, you know, the Wolfman did. and It would really belong more in the top three slot. I think sometimes I bump it down because technically there's not a sequel to this. This was a standalone one and done. All the other universal mummy movies really... Involve other mummy characters and have very little to do, if nothing at all, with this film outside of using some of the shots in this film as stock footage. But anyway, I love the mummy and it's about time I rewatch the film anyway, you know, because I don't have enough movies to watch, whether they're rewatches or brand new watches or whatever. Tom, thank you for writing in. I appreciate you, sir. <laughs> you can call and leave a voicemail for Monster Kid Radio at 503
2: 810 5MKR. That's 503-810-5657.
1: Or you can send an email to the podcast. MonsterKidRadio at gmail.com is the email address. That's MonsterKidRadio at gmail.com. Hello,
3: everyone. Hello, everyone. This is Wednesday, and I figured out a way to make the monsters in the machine speak for me. I need your help. My dad says I have to start pulling my own weight around here, but I don't want to have to get a real job. Instead, I found this America's favorite pet contest, and if I win, I'll get $5,000. I can only win if you vote for me, though. Go to tinyurl.com slash favorite Wednesday to place your vote and help me win. You can vote once a day for free. And if I win, I promise to make Derek buy me all the cat treats and all the cat toys. Thanks, everyone. I am Dracula. A moment ago, I stumbled upon a most amazing phenomenon. Something so incredible, I mistrust my own judgment. Look. Dracula. The very mention of the name brings to mind things so evil, so fantastic, so degrading. You wonder if it isn't all a dream, a nightmare. Rats. 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 Thousands. Millions of them. But no, this is no dream. This is Dracula, the original terrifying story of a maniac and a man who lived after death, lived on human blood, took the form of a vampire bat, and lured innocent girls to a fate truly worse than death. Dracula?
4: Oh, what's he done to you, dearie? Tell me. He came to
3: me. He opened a stain in his arm, and he made me drink. witnessing a biological chain reaction, a geometrical progression of deadly mass. It had started casually, insignificantly, as momentous events often do. Look there. Two points off the port bow. The giant behemoth, the fire-spitting monster predicted in the Bible, its core a mass of lethal radiation rising from the depths of time its strength enormous its gargantuan ferocity a threat to london to the world itself we must find a way of destroying this creature in one piece judging by the beast's size i would say it was powerful enough to drive a battleship of course it's tremendous electric charge is what projects the radiation that's what makes a creature so deadly have well, you any concrete suggestions yes First block off the Thames.
5: From the land of light in Nebula M78, home of the mighty Ultra Heroes. It's Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review. Planet Earth is hurtling toward a dark zone in the sixth episode of Ultra 7. While the Terrestrial Defense Force analyzes a cryptic radio signal, Anne Yuri is startled by a mysterious stranger in her apartment. The stranger is both shadowy and an actual shadow. Together, Anne and Dan interact with the being who is struggling with an apparent injury and is touched by their kindness. The radio signal finally comes through clearly. It's being generated from an outer space metropolis called Pegasus City, and their request is direct. Because of a power failure, Pegasus City is traveling erratically through space to avoid collision The Pegasins are asking that the Earth adjust its orbit for 80 hours. This being impossible, the TDF is forced to eliminate the threat, and the UltraGuard's mission is to evacuate Pegasus City. Their effort fails, however, and the Space City is tragically destroyed by a TDF bomb. The Earthbound shadow figure reveals himself to Anne as a Pegasin, who has a mission of his own, It's to blow up the Earth so that Pegasus City can pass safely. Unaware that his home no longer exists, he sets out to accomplish his lethal goal. Dark Zone is aptly named. It's a serious story, a sober-minded meditation on the use of deadly force in the name of defense. The episode shows the enduring influence of Ultra Q between its thoughtful theme, and the visual of an alien running through the nighttime streets Dark Zone feels like the series that started it all, with the addition of amazing tech and a transforming superhero to save the day. Although the surviving Pegasa alien escapes into the shadows, various forms of the character would reemerge in later series, such as 2017's Ultraman Jeed, in which a friendly adolescent Pega is a friend of lead character Riku, and was so popular, he had his own YouTube miniseries. For Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review, this is Mark Manske reporting.
4: beginning of the wildest weirdest adventure you've ever seen
3: I don't
6: care for fair, I'm not the
3: kind of
4: now anything goes true, and everything grows. this is where the fun really began i wonder if this makes everything grow hey will you cut it out and leave it alone huh Freddie freddy
3: boy if i want to try some of this stuff just don't you try and stop me understand and try it they did are going to take over this town now first of all there's going to be a nine o'clock curfew for all adults
4: it's wild it's way out it's village of the giants
1: Whether you like it or not, little man, we're just
3: going to have to show you what's good for you, that's all.
4: Maybe we don't like your club either. You're in it anyway. See what happens when young rebels explode 30 feet tall. Village of the Giants.
6: i am Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr.
2: Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror film. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos the Hands of Fate, and one of the creators of the original chill role-playing game.
6: This book recreates the thrills of the classic monster versus monster film. We've got vampires, werewolves, Mummies, psychic twins, scheming madmen, and plenty of unexpected chills.
2: Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors in print or for Kindle at Amazon.com and other fine retailers. Coming soon in other ebook formats. Find out more at CushingHorrors.com or SDSullivan.com and support Steve's work through Patreon at PaySteve.com.
3: I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again. And remember, the chamber is always waiting for its next
7: victim.
8: Name Cornelius, adult chimpanzee. Speaks English. Name Zira, female
3: chimpanzee. Practices medicine. Name Baby Milo, infant chimpanzee. Milo's secret that can destroy
4: mankind. They come from an incredible planet of apes.
3: They survived a war beneath the planet of apes. Now it's Earth 1973, and you're in for a surprise. Are they friendly visitors or invaders from the future? Why does the president's advisor want them shot? What is baby Milo's incredible secret? All the surprising answers are an Escape from the Planet of the Apes. All new from 20th Century Fox, rated G all ages. Escape from the Planet of the
6: Apes. Hello there, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at famous monsters of filmland. Today's film, To the Devil, a Daughter, was never featured in FM, but its star was a perennial favorite. Christopher Lee often graced the pages of Famous Monsters. I found an interesting interview with him in Famous Monsters 90 from May of 1972. It is an interview which occurred sometime after the shooting of Vengeance of Fu Manchu in 1967, but first appears here. Today I have friends helping. Joseph will be playing Bill, Michael will take the role of Uncle Forey, and Oscar will voice Christopher Lee. They aren't the greatest actors in the world, but they beat my bumbling marble mouth by a long shot. So let's hear the interview.
1: Make a wish. What was it? For many FM readers, it would be to talk to their favorite horror film star, be it Vincent Price, Peter Cushing, or John Carradine. This dream came true for FM fan Bill Coburn, who got a priceless opportunity to talk over the phone with his favorite, Christopher Lee. Bill is so devoted to the star that he named his son after him, Christopher Lee Coburn. Your editor, knowing how much Bill admires Mr. Lee, called to Kentucky to say that Chris had just flown in from Hong Kong, where he had done a Fu Manchu film, and would be at the Ackermansion that evening. I suggested that if Bill called back around midnight, he might indeed speak to his idol. Bill did, and the most interesting parts of the conversation are shared with all UFM readers. Hello Bill. The next voice you hear will be that of Christopher Lee.
7: Mr. Coburn, how are you?
1: What a delight to hear you, Mr. Lee. I
2: have quite a list of things I'd like to talk to you about. I'm ready. Are you familiar with the work of Robert E. Howard, who wrote the Conan books? I think his, Cairn on the Headland, would make a great movie and you would be perfect for the part of Odin. It deals with the end of Viking power in Ireland. Plus a lot of magic.
7: Oh, yes. That was about 900 BC, I know because my wife is Danish, descended from the Vikings.
2: Was your height a problem in your early career? Oh yes, it was. I imagine that was because no one cared to have someone in the picture who towered above the leading man. That is exactly right. I have heard all sorts of estimates of your height, anywhere up to 6'6". Six six.
7: No, I am 6'4".
2: I have enjoyed your work with accents very much, French,
7: German. You do them all so well. I enjoy doing them, all except American. I have never been able to master the American dialect. Speaking of accents, I must tell you how much I enjoyed your work in Beyond Mombasa. As a matter of fact, I almost killed myself during that production. We were out in the African jungle and there were no stuntmen available, so when it came time to do the fall into the mine, I had to do it myself. After several takes, I was cut to ribbons, rolling over those rough pieces of quartz.
2: After you were shot, the picture fell apart for me. That's how I feel whenever you're killed in a movie. A few weeks ago I had the chance to see you in Alias John Preston, and I liked it very much.
1: The film features Lee in some eerie dream sequences. I was very
7: inexperienced at the time.
2: I've heard that you would not do another Frankenstein or Mummy movie. Is that so?
7: No, I wouldn't care to do those again, but Dracula is quite another matter. He is such an interesting character, don't you think? Well, of course everyone loves you for Dracula. When my wife saw it
2: she fell madly in love with you and it resulted in naming our son Chris after you. I must remark how much you sound like Basil Rathbone over the phone. Well
7: we are both Englishmen.
2: Are you aware of how much your career resembles that of Boris Karloff at this point?
7: Mr. Karloff and I were, in fact, neighbors in London for some time living on the same block. My daughter was even born on his birthday.
2: Oh yes. November 24th.
7: No. November 23rd.
2: That's right. The 24th is Forey's birthday. I have heard that you are going to do a picture with Vincent Price.
1: Yes there are plans afoot. The film, which also stars Peter Cushing, played American theaters and was called Scream and Scream Again. Tell me. What was the movie you just finished in Hong Kong?
7: The Vengeance of Fu Manchu.
2: Thank you, Mr. Lee. It has been a real pleasure talking with you.
1: Good night, Mr. Coben. And so a dream came true for a famous monsters reader. So don't give up your love for monsters and the people that portray them. Keep reading famous monsters and perhaps someday a similar dream will come true for you.
6: That is all for this week's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We will have more next time. For MKR, this is Kenny saying adios. Are
1: you going to buy me a drink?
4: How about coming for a ride?
3: Not here. It's no good here. <laughs> At first, the police thought the girl had been hacked to pieces by a sex maniac. But now investigation reveals much more. The terror they are hunting is something less than human, more monster than man. This girl wasn't born. She was assembled piece by piece from living human flesh. The killer took her apart the same way. This is what nightmares are made of. Scream and scream again with Vincent Price, Christopher Lee, and Peter Cushing is the ultimate in horror shock that will make you scream and scream again in color. Rated M. Do you know how you'll feel when you see... Touch your skin, it's scaled. Your legs, they're gone. Your body, it's cold. And listen for the hissing. Don't say it, hiss it. Plus
4: another spine-chilling hit. The boy who cried werewolf. Those who didn't believe him are dead. Rated PG, parental guidance suggested.
0: I am Dracula, and I bid you welcome to the podcast devoted to the classic, and sometimes not so classic, genre cinema of yesteryear. And I offer you this warning. Sometimes Derek and his guests get excited, and they may spoil a movie or two. You know how excited monster kids can get sometimes. If Monster Kid Radio spoils a movie for you, do not come whining to me. I cannot stand whines. Listeners, I am always surprised when I load up Skype to talk to somebody on the show that I've had on the show before, and I feel like, yeah, it's not been that long. Skype says it's been over a year since I've had this man's voice in my ears. It's Frank Schilderner, award-nominated author, heck of a guy expert on, desert, well, more expert than me anyway, on Dennis Wheatley and, you know, one of my favorite people to talk to. Frank, welcome back to Monster Kid Radio.
8: Thank you. It's been too long. i missed you speaking to you. It's been a lot of fun hearing what you've been producing. You've been producing some great
0: stuff. You know, I'm only as good as the guests that joined me, which is why this week's episode is going to be awesome, right? Of course. I'm here. How could it be anything else? <laughs> and I'm modestly saying that. You've been busy yourself, sir. You're like a writing machine, constantly putting out stuff. You've got a new book out, uh, The Satanic Gangs of New York. Did I get the title right?
8: The Satanic Gangs of New York. Yep, that's me. Tell me about that. It's set in 1894. Uh, it's a horror novel with a lot of adventure. In Manhattan, it has a male character who's connected to a Stephen Roberts. He doesn't really know his name or anything he is connected to a very wealthy family uh, a banking family in manhattan and he's brought back he spends all his time pretty much training to be tougher and more dangerous and it slowly comes out involving demons and satanic cults and stuff like that in his past that makes him like that and there's been a rumor in the streets, and he runs into it, that the infamous gang boss, who's been dead since like 40 years, uh, Bill the Butcher Poole, the real one, not the one in the movie, who was not, um, is back. He came back from hell and is looking to start a war against all of the, the non-white Anglo-Saxon Protestants in the, and and taking power. And it's one of those stories that kind of unveils slowly as it goes. It it was a lot of fun to write. It seems to be getting some popular write-ups, so I'm enjoying that people like it. Uh, I hope to write more with that character, because Stephen Roberts is an interesting character. He has some kind of been touched by the demonic, so he has some abilities, I guess you could call it, that aren't quite normal. So it came out there, too, with a lot of details of the history, but in a fun sort of way, not like you're getting a lecture. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, that's One of the things that I like about uh, talking with you is that, like me, like a lot of people that come onto to Monster Kid Radio and a lot of the listeners, we have these weird pockets of, of uh, history and knowledge, that, you know, we could just go off on. And fortunately for people like you and me and people who listen to Monster Kid Radio. We all eat that stuff up. I haven't read the book yet. I'm looking forward to it. It's out from Pro Se Productions right now under your own imprint, Children's World. People, go check it out. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes, of course. It's available in print and on Kindle. So go check that out. Of course, I'm sure knowing you, you've got like three or four different things in the works right now. (laughs) That's also true. I am finishing an
8: essay on Dark Shadows for a book. No, really? Oh, yes. Uh, uh an essay about that. I wrote an essay that's coming out pretty soon in a book about Stargate. Okay. I did a mythology part of that. And I'm working right now on a novel. I'm about halfway through a novel, a sort of horror novel with the demon cults involving uh, the court of Louis XIV. Of okay. France. And it's got a lot of uh, Alexander Dumas, Three Musketeers kind of edge to it as well. (laughs) Of course it does. Yes. And I'm also considering uh, I'm doing some research on uh, the House Medici and uh, some ideas I have about them for involving uh, satanic cults and stuff like that and demons and. Seems to be my thing, plus some pulp ideas, so you never know what I'll do next. My brain just tells me what I'm doing when I start it.
0: That's one of my favorite things about following you on Facebook is that it seems like every few months you'll post a handful of photos or pictures that you found online. It's basically like a Pinterest or mood board. I'm thinking about writing something like this, and I always have fun trying to figure out just where your brain is gonna go based on these images, and I'm almost always wrong and pleasantly surprised
8: well i'm almost always wrong what i think of too so it, it works out true i was thinking i was going to sit down and write a kind of mystery novel and my brain said no you're not doing this you're working in louis the Fourteenth's court and you're gonna and you're gonna write about a character who is a swordsman with some knowledge of some crazy stuff who's going to be hired to look into several terrible French mysteries involving murders and demonology. So
0: it's like, I don't know where I'm going with this stuff either. Yeah, I love it, man. Well, One of the things that I'm really excited for you though, uh, is your nomination for a Robert E. Howard foundation award of the Costigan for literary achievement, which is an award that is given to fiction writers, people who write fiction in the spirit and tradition of Robert E. Howard, who, I think everybody who listens to the show knows that I worship at the altar of Robert E. Howard. He's my favorite writer. Uh, But this is an award reserved for folks who write in that vein, in that spirit, in that tradition. And your novel, The Last Days of Atlantis, was nominated. And I think that's fantastic, sir.
8: Yeah, I couldn't believe I was on the ballot. I mean, I never really think of these things, but uh, it's an honor. I mean, I worship at the altar of Robert E. Howard. I'm on with some amazing writers, uh, Charles Gramlich, uh, some of the writers that are uh, listed in there are just fantastic. So just being listed on the ballot alone is an honor to me, win or lose to me. I'm really very proud of that. And it's one of my favorite accomplishments in the last few years.
0: I am excited to hear that. Now, I will make sure there's a link to that announcement as well. You do have to be a member of the Robert E. Howard Foundation in order to vote. And like the ballot for the Rondo Hatton Classic Horror Awards, the Robert E. Howard Foundation Awards works as a great checklist of all the stuff that you missed last year for Robert E. Howard fandom studies, fiction, what have you. And not only is Frank's book on there, but some other awesome novels, Uh, an online magazine, Whetstone is on there, which is a great, a lot of really cool stuff. So go check that out if you're interested in anything like the kind of things that Frank and I are into.
8: And Whetstone is fantastic. They are Oh, isn't it great? They are fantastic. It's a genuine pleasure to be on the same ballot as them. And uh, my friend Rick Lay has been nominated several yeah. times for that. And anytime you think you know a lot on a subject, you find out Rick knows ten times more. You were involved with a book with him, right?
0: The Spaghetti Western book.
8: Yeah. Uh, he actually recruited me, uh, called me, and asked to uh, get me into the, his uh, Spaghetti Western novel uh, series. And it was a lot of fun to write that, too, because he knows I love Spaghetti Westerns. Rick Lay's Major Sabbath. It's available on Amazon and Kindle and everywhere else. and Audible, even. Audible, too. But Audible doesn't have one of the best parts of it. In the back section of the book, Rick includes his world encyclopedia of a a spaghetti western universe based on hundreds of movies and and write-ups and stuff like that and it's actually just as much fun to read the entries on the different characters and locations and guns and stuff as it is reading the stories in the book so you really get a great experience there.
0: That's awesome.
8: Oh, you'll find 10 movies you've never heard of you want to see now after you read
0: this. That's incredible. Also, I want to give a shout out to fellow podcasters, the gang over at the Cromcast for also making the ballot. If you are interested in anything Robert E. Howard or or Pulp Fiction or Sword and Sorcery related, check out the Cromcast. It's a great podcast. They do some really deep dives. Recently, they've been doing some stuff with Dracula, which is fantastic. And I believe Karen Joan Cahotic has done stuff with them in the past as well. She's also an mkr irregular so yeah definitely some great stuff over there absolutely spectacular all right so i have a feeling you and i could geek out about robert e howard writing pulp fiction sword and sorcery dracula or anything else that we've brought up spaghetti westerns over the past you know few minutes but that's not why people are here. That's not why you're here today. You're here to play around round of the Classic Five. Nice. Always I'm here to play around of <laughs> the Classic Five. The Classic Five. The Classic Five is a game that we play here on Monster Kid Radio. It's a deck of cards. Each card says a this or that. Which movie do you prefer style question? And listeners, listen to this. I found my deck of cards. I finally unpacked the box that had the cards in them. No longer do I have to rely on a spreadsheet on my computer. I have the actual cards. Each card has a this or that. Which movie do you prefer? Style question on them. There are no wrong answers. It's just a way to get monster kids talking about their favorite subject, monster movies. Frank, are you ready to play a rather hammer specific round? Oh, hammer specific. I know I love the right. hammer. There you go. Are you ready, sir? I am ready. All right. Question number one not counting the first one. What's your favorite Hammer Dracula film?
8: Favorite Hammer Dracula film, Legend of the
0: Seven Golden Vampires. Oh, wow. I, I should have seen that one coming. Oh, are you kidding
3: <laughs> Black Belt against Black Magic in the greatest battle of all time. Seven brothers and their one
8: sister, Pete Dracula. No Christopher Lee, I get it, it's fine. Uh, Malcolm Roberts, Forbes Roberts as as Dracula, overacting and didn't even use his voice. Peter Cushing, that Australian actor who played his son in one film there. And more important to me, David Chang, who Mm -hmm. I actually was a major fan of growing up from his uh, Shaw Brothers Kung Fu movies. David Chang was once positioned in a way they were trying to make him a sort of Shaw Brothers version of Bruce Lee. The man had just such spectacular skill and delivery, and I just loved the setting and the world. And I even wrote a short story for Tales of the Shadowmen, which had uh, the seven golden vampires and uh, the French version of Frankenstein versus a group of asian martial artists that i threw together it was a lot of fun and i just love that movie <laughs> i
0: i should have seen that one coming yeah yes, it's, it's, it's like uh, yeah i wasn't expecting it until you said like oh yeah of course obviously yes all right <laughs> question number two the Mass experiment or Mass two Mass experiment not even a the second. first one yes i love that movie
3: you can't escape it maggie Look! Nothing can destroy it. It's coming for you from space to wipe all living things from the face of the earth. Beware of the creeping unknown.
4: This woman
3: is about to learn a terrible secret. She will never be the same again. Because this man knows that same secret, he will never speak again. To both of them has come terror in the form of The Creeping Unknown.
8: Well, it movie just moved me. It's like, oh, God, there's a whole world I'd never thought of. I had actually seen it before I even knew Doctor Who existed. So to me, it was kind of my entry point after that to Doctor Who because I didn't have any access to it in the early 80s. And then a friend wow. said I could, I said, oh, he said, you like this? Have you ever heard of Doctor Who? It's like, I think I've read about it in like Famous Monsters. I never really knew what it was all about. And he said, tune into this one CV station and you'll get to see a whole episode, you know, instead of the pieces, they shove it all together in like a two hour movie every Saturday.
0: And I became a
8: thorough Doctor Who fan. That was my entry point. But yeah,
0: experiment has to win. From Quatermass to Who. Fascinating jump. Yes. Now I kind of want to see Brian Donlevy play the Doctor. I don't know why, but I think that would be... I'd
8: see Brian Donlevy in anything.
0: That's That's... true. I do like the guy a lot. He's (laughs) great. All right. We're going to go to the Karnstein Trilogy. Vampire Lovers. Lust for a Vampire or Twins of Evil? Which one's your favorite?
8: Uh, Vampire Lovers. Hark. A film of tender love and screams
4: of vampire death. When you see The Vampire Lovers, you'll see beautiful love and vampire evil, and it'll drive your mind through a thousand terror-filled moments. Discover the sweet embrace and the deadly kiss of blood nymphs who refuse to die. The Vampire Lovers, in color rated R. See The Vampire Lovers.
8: Vampire Lovers is just, it's the closest to the true Camellia kernstein uh, story. I write about the Karnsteins, as you know, mm-hmm. in my uh, Napoleon's Vampire Hunters, one of the major characters is uh, Baron Karnstein, who is a hero with some very unusual ways of viewing the world. The Vampire Lovers is good. I do like all three, and and I even like the unofficial two that are in that. There's two unofficial ones. Vampire Circus is said to be an unofficial Karnstein Mm-hmm. Story: the the circus leader and the Baron real Karnsteins, in fact, and the other one being Captain Kronos, vampire hunter. Benedict Cumberbatch's mom appears briefly ex- and tells everybody that she's a Karnstein, though she pronounced it wrong. Um, Hmm. She pronounced it as Karstein, but you know, whatever, it's the same thing. Those are the unofficial lust for a vampire has
0: literally the stupidest sex scene in history. (laughs) You said stupidest and I couldn't tell where you were going to go. Sex scene, theme song. You know, just, all of the above, all of the above. It has so many moments of it.
8: Um, though it was nice to see a, a male Kernstein show up for a brief period of time there. And while Twins of Evil is a great movie, I don't know, it just felt like it was derivative more than anything else. It wasn't, it, it was too easy and there was no real protagonists in that movie. I mean, you're sort of cheering for Peter Cushing, but he's burning women just because they're not the way he thinks they are. You know, he's got that puritanical craziness going, and you don't mind if he gets killed. But One twin, well, you knew in the beginning of the movie she was going to be the vampire. It was like, you know, it could have been better. That's That was mine right on the Karnsteins.
0: Fair enough. All right, well, if you could have been on set during the production of any Hammer film, which one would it have been? Um.
8: Well... You know what? I'll be nice. I, I, I won't be completely crazy that way. Uh, Captain Cronus, Vampire Hunter would be my choice.
3: For dear life, hold on to your blood. Because your blood is their life. Because your nightmare is their reality. They are history's deadliest vampires, creating the panic only one man can stop. Captain Cronus, Vampire Hunter, with death at every doorway trembling in every heart now the terror must be challenged (sighs) who lives to destroy the curse kill me kill me who duels to battle the undead
4: her youth
3: will pulse through your veins my darling who dares to bleed the bloodthirsty yes you bleed my lord at last horror has met its match Captain Cronus, Vampire Hunter, from Paramount Pictures, rated R, under 17, not admitted without parent.
8: Because it had Carolyn Monroe, who I still have a lifelong crush on. Uh, it had one of the world's greatest fight choreographers with sword fighting, and I would love to have met that man. He was just uh, Hobbes, who played the Baron in that. He actually did the fight scene and played the bad uh, the... The vampire there, and he was one of the greatest swordsmen of our time. Uh, I love the story. I love the writers. I love the, the directors. And as much as I would kill to meet, you know, Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing and uh, all of those actors, to meet a martial artist like him would have been a, a true honor. William Hobbs was just such an amazing human being. Now, would you love to hear this little quick anecdote about Carolyn Monroe? Of course. Okay, so I go with my parents, little kid, going to see my second James Bond movie, Spy Love Me, and she plays the beautiful helicopter pilot, and I recognized her, even though I was a very little kid at that point, but I'd been reading the famous monsters all for you know, on and off for a couple of years. And so as we're driving home, my mother and father are talking about it and they're wondering who she is because she was just so beautiful and all that. And sitting in the backseat, I said, it was Carolyn Monroe. And they're at a stoplight and they both turn their heads like, how do you know that name? I was like, oh, she's in movies. I, I saw her in my magazine. It was like, that it, it doesn't sound right. You know, in like, my magazine. <laughs> it's in my magazine. It's like, yeah, she's uh, she's always wearing no clothing, and like you don't have any magazines with naked. I said, I didn't say naked. She just wears like no clothing, and they're just like. And my mother says, I don't think you're right. And I said, yes, I am. I did what all kids do at that age. I said, I'll bet you. I have no. <laughs> money. I'm a little kid. She says, fine. If you win, I'll make your bed for an entire month. If I win, you have to make mine. I'm like, okay. I said, I was sure of it. I saw pictures of the woman in many things. And so we go home, and I march upstairs with both parents and my brother. I dig around for a minute, and I pull out a famous monsters of movie. And I flip open the page, and there's Carolyn Monroe in one of her, you know, harem outfits. I said, there she is. And my parents look at it, and my father looks up and says, you're going to make his bed for a month, aren't you? Nice. And I, it was the first and last time I ever won a bet with my mother. Because she
0: learned never argue with this kid when it comes <laughs> to movies. Have you ever had a chance to meet Carolyn Monroe? No, I wish I had. So the reason I ask is, you know, she does a number of conventions. And uh, I've never had a chance to interact with her. I've interacted with some of the other, you know, hammer actresses that are still around. But if you ever meet her, please tell me you tell her that story. I because I want to hear what her... I want to hear the response. I want to hear how that goes over.
8: No, actually, that's one of the first times I'm planning, if I ever get to meet Carolyn Monroe, and I really hope I do, I want somebody filming her reaction as I tell her this story because I just think that her reaction to this whole thing is going to be hysterical.
0: I would love to see it and hear it.
8: Yes, because I I never met her. I'm hoping when pandemic is over I'll get a chance because she sometimes comes to a convention in New Jersey. And that's where my friend Mark met her. And mm-hmm. it's where I met Mark and a bunch of other guys I only knew from Facebook. So it was quite, a, it's a quite a place. And uh, I've met some cool actors and actresses there. It's, it's a convention literally for just signing autographs and stuff.
0: So I will say this, Caroline Monroe sometimes goes to Monster Bash. And I know you go to that hotel that Monster Bash is in because that's where Pulp Fest is as well. That's true. So you you get you've no excuse, man. You got it. <laughs> I've got to get there one day. Yes. You know, I'm just saying. Yeah, you're, you're right. You're right, <laughs> uh, 100. So. percent So we kind of lost track, which is something that happens, and I love it. Always about nice. the, the classic five. That was that was number four, though, wasn't it? That was four. Okay. Final question. We're going to go back to the Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee. Well, because I mean, you, you can't help but not. Go back to Lee and Cushing. Favorite Hammer Films pairing of Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing?
8: Uh, Horror Dracula with The Mummy as a very close second. Oh, okay. Uh, Horror Dracula to me is just one of the best movies going, period. One of the things that always impressed me about that was, first, Christopher Lee was so imposing as Dracula. And he could vary between the very noble, uh, regal character to the animalistic undead in in a blink of an eye. But Christopher Lee is also so tall and big and terrifying looking, whereas Peter Cushing was this scrawny guy, little scrawny guy, yet he threw himself at Dracula in that movie like they were the same height and, and no difference between them. And... That shaped my way of viewing Van Helsing. Because previous, you know, Edward Sloan's Van Helsing was very academic. Very mm-hmm. hands off, very distant. Whereas this was a, a Van Helsing who literally like dove into the fight. He had no he had no compunctions about getting beat up, uh, if he had to, if he could get a chance to win. It was just such an amazing performance that I became a major Peter Cushing fan after that. And then, of course, then Star Wars came out, and it's like
0: I was one of the few people who wanted him to win. (laughs) Well, I think I've said this on the show, too, in the past, that I like Edward Van Sloan a lot. He is definitely probably the Van Helsing I'd want to take a class from. He seems the most professorial. Van Helsing's the action hero. He gets in there and he gets it done, you know. That's Peter Cushing's Van Helsing for me. So yes, and he never does it with. There was no magic. There's no
8: extra powers. There's no secret devices. He kills Dracula with a pair of candlesticks. I, I, I you're done. It's awesome. You're not. You're not gonna. You're not gonna tell me that that's not action hero right there, right? I mean, he didn't. He didn't need. An assistant with with, uh, steam-powered crossbows and crap like that. No.
0: (laughs) I don't even know what you're referring to at this point, but uh, I don't want to see that. Van Van Helsing. I try to put that out of my brain. I I try not to think too much about
8: it. No, I keep it in my brain because it's like I say to my uh, students in my martial arts uh, classes. I've broken many 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 toes all of them many 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 times and my toes are pretty terrifying i said if you keep kicking like this you can have a set of toes like mine so i tell them the human don't i consider van helsing the monster movie
0: don't of the modern day this is what we don't <laughs> do ever again you know and i know i said earlier too i was using you know we both were using the word you know stupidest talking about one of these carnesine films and and I, I hate to use words like that because, as I was saying on the stream just last night, actually, every movie is somebody's favorite. And and I know there are a lot of people out there that love Van Helsing. That's all I got to say.
8: Yes, um, now, oh, <laughs> I can even give them one positive. They paid tribute to the character of Igor by quoting Bela Lugosi. Uh, when the Igor in that movie, which was not nearly as good as Bela's, of course, said, you think you get Igor, but Igor gets you, which is quoting Bela directly. Sure, and It's like, I read it's not as bad as it could have been because you had that. And look, there's no such thing to in as a totally terrible movie that has Kate Beckinsale in it. I if she's in to it, go there. I got plenty to look for. I mean, I just have a crush on her forever. But doesn't matter. It's still not a great movie, but if if look if somebody out there likes it, more power to you. More power to you. Enjoy your movie. Just don't put it in yep. front of me. It's got a great score. I'll give it. Oh, that. it's got a great score, and it's got look. It's got uh, the CGI werewolves. They do are for the time were very advanced and interesting looking. It's just not a movie that really worked for me. Fine. I got no problem with people liking movies I don't. There are people who love Manos hands of fate. I find it unwatchable, but fine. Oh, we can't be friends anymore. I know. What are you talking I know. about? I said that on purpose. Dude. <laughs> I'm not a fan of that one, but you know what? It's not a
0: I don't consider it as bad as Van Helsing, in my opinion. Wow. All right. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, that was a, a very convoluted roundabout, lazy game. Of the classic five, <laughs> which is always what you get from me. Oh, uh, it's the best kind of classic five, you know? Yes. Uh, and at least good one times. mention, there's
8: always one mention of the Hammer Beauties. I always manage to put one in.
0: Well, I did this on purpose. Oh, what are you talking yeah, about? Of course. You know? <laughs> I did this on purpose. Because yeah. you know it's coming. Yeah. Well, you know, and it's a Hammer film that we're talking about. And I, you know, I probably said something. I haven't recorded it yet, but I'm pretty sure I'm going to say something if I remember to. But I'm going to say something again here regarding this week's film, To the Devil, A Daughter. It is a little notorious for some very specific things. And I don't want to really talk too much about, you know, the, the, the controversial stuff other than, yeah, there's some stuff in there that's a little icky. It's also not necessarily the kind of movie I would normally talk about on Monster Kid Radio because there is some graphic stuff in it. But it is a Hammer film. And I've always said that Hammer is always going to have a place here on Monster Kid Radio, and I think this movie's got a lot going for it outside of some of the shocking—I'll just say it—nudity or or sexual content. You
8: can get that out of the way very quickly. I mean, yeah, you know, I just we, want to kind of look st- when yeah. you look into this movie. One of the most objectionable parts for everybody and I'm including myself, is... And rightly so. And rightly yeah. so, is that they have a, a fully naked 16-year-old Nastasia Kinski walking into towards the camera like that, which I honestly thought was unnecessarily graphic and Dennis Wheatley absolutely abhorred it, and mean, he was the writer of the book that it was yeah. based on. It was unnecessary, it was unneeded... There were several other scenes of that variety, near but not showing anything. But still, they were trying for something new because Hammer was dying. It doesn't work. It's objectionable. As a Wheatley fan, it's my least favorite part of these movies. But it is part of the movie because they, they put it there. If I had my way, I honestly would cut it out because it's unnecessary. There's a sacrificial scene that's very obviously done with a dummy. It's unnecessary. It shouldn't have been done that way. They could have done it just as well with uh suggested images would have been better, actually. Yeah. I agree. And it's and there's a Couple of scenes with Nastasha Kinski Around there that are very Borderline or totally objectionable As well yeah. including mm-hmm. the Worst monster They ever created in Hammer movie history Bar none mm-hmm. 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 The cheapest Cheesiest most awful looking Thing and we'll discuss it as we get to it mm-hmm. in, the, in The entire history of Hammer And a scene with it that's worse Understand That walking in and you'll probably will be. You'll you'll say, "Oh, that's just plain stupid," like most people do
0: if they know about it. Yeah. First time you see it, on the other hand, you will be grossed out. So this was a first time watch for me, and I'm going to take it a step further. I'm going to make it even worse for everybody. Yeah. Frank just said she was 16. Some sources say she was 14. So I'm going to make it even worse.
8: And you know what makes it ten times worse? Most of the movie. Lem- Explain this to people who don't know it. Most of the movie, she's fully clothed and dressed Mm -hmm. as a nun. Yeah. But Nastasia Kinski, to this day, has one of the most beautiful faces that ever blessed the modern day. Which is weird considering who her father was. Yes, her father is one of the most grotesque-looking creatures ever. (laughs) Klaus Kinski is her her um, dad, and yeah, whoa. He's one of the most bizarre, unusual creatures that ever walk the earth and talented but crazy most of the movie she looks like an 18 year old girl which is what she was supposed to be playing a 21 year old girl and Mm -hmm. she looks it to find that she's 14 or 16 is a startling thing when you're older i first saw this movie when i was in my teens so it was not so bad for me Right. Growing up though when I I watched it like Derek and I watched it separately last night I'm looking at this and it's like the way they did her makeup, the way they shot her facial features, she looks like she's in her 20s and she's she's a teenager. So there's a grotesqueness to this. The scenes where she's dressed fully and looks like she's in her 20s it kind of works. When they went further showing her naked or partially naked, I was disgusted. So I'm gonna be very honest and I am one of the world's renowned Dennis Wheatley fans, but he didn't like the movie either.
0: Dennis Wheatley was very uh, unhappy and uh, some reports, some things that I've read was that after he saw this, he's like, yeah, you're not making any more movies based on my books, which, you know, kind of worked out because Hammer did like one more movie and that was it anyway. So yes, that he, he. You have to understand. Dennis Wheatley was a very unusual man.
8: He was an upper class man who came from a fairly wealthy family. He was a poor businessman who went into writing more as a fun thing, and he turned out to be an incredibly gifted writer of horror and adventure novels. He's best known as the, uh, for his horror, but his adventure novels were actually the most popular things for most of his career because they were uh, the influence on people like Ian Fleming. And he was also a member of uh, British intelligence during World War II. During this period, he also knew Alistair Crowley, pretty well-known figure, a clergyman known as Montague Summers, who was a student of demonology. And he included a lot of these concepts of these people in The Devil Rides Out and To the Devil, a Daughter. And there's an almost bloodless factor to his horror novels. Mm -hmm. But there's also a conservative view of it because he was a very vastly conservative man, yet he was an ardent... Hater of anti Semitism. So he wrote, uh, intentionally wrote very heroic Jewish characters in a lot of his books for that reason. Dennis Wheatley's grandson, who has name I believe is Dominic, used to write about his grandfather who was divorced from his grandmother. How, his, when his grandmother would come visiting, it was a fun time. His grandmother was one of those joyful ladies who would play with the kids and, you know, all of that and a lot of laughs. When Dennis Wheatley and his wife would come, it was like a royal visit. Children had to be quiet, not speak until spoken to. You had to treat them like you were like they were visiting nobility. You know, it was a whole different experience. So you get this unusual figure writing these very horrific horror novels set in Satanism. And one of the points I'm about to make is comes from this in the book. The Satanists are communists also. (laughs) Really? I'm not joking a bit. Okay. The book called the two book series called the Molly Fountain books are about a woman who may have been a spy during World War II and her sort, I guess you could call him a boyfriend, Colonel Varney, whose name will come back, Varney.
0: Oh,
8: okay. Yes, I figured you'd love this. Colonel Barney is an intelligence officer who who is always on the lookout for plots against the British Empire. And during World War II, it was fascists. After World War II, it was communists who were spreading black magic all over the world. And that's a running theme in many of his later books. There's even – at one point, the uh, John Fountain, Molly Fountain's son, comes to visit and meets Catherine, who is the Nastasha Kinsky character. And they're having a conversation, and he doesn't believe in demonology and all that stuff. And she says, "Oh no, no, that's what it's all about. I mean, strikes, sexual promiscuity, and all of the things that Dennis Wheatley blamed." Modern society on Were based in communism to him Okay And he took it the step further That he actually I think it was true Actually believed that Satanists Worked for the communists Well Yes I know Okay Honestly as a student of The intelligence side Of the Soviet culture I can tell you No It wasn't.
0: (laughs) I, 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 yeah, I wasn't thinking, yeah.
8: (laughs) No, I know you weren't, but it's like, I'm just saying it in general. Anybody out there is wondering, no, I'm sorry. (laughs) It was really just not, it it was just evil people, but no, no, it would be more interesting if it was Satanist behind it. I mean, from a writer's point of view, but no, it wasn't true. So there's that difference there and then we come back to the movie so to the devil a daughter starts very uniquely it starts with a roman catholic
0: excommunication of christopher lee's character yeah and you gotta love that i'm watching this so like i said it was a first time watch for me i knew about the stuff with you know the the girl with natasha i knew about that but I, I didn't really know much more about the film. So I'm going into it and I'd seen like the DVD cover with you know, Christopher Lee and the priest outfit and all that. I didn't realize, I guess maybe I should have, but because it's Christopher freaking Lee, I guess I just assumed he was going to be the hero again. Cause he wasn't the last Dennis Wheatley, occult movie that I watched from hammer, you know, and the the devil writes out. He's a good guy. Yes. He's the, Oh, he's, the, he's the, not the, in this.
8: The beginning of the movie. Well, um, after the excommunication, he Christopher Lee is staring up at the crucifix and he says the very famous line in his own head, it is not heresy and I will not recant, which was used in uh, the song by White Zombie, Supercharger Heaven. Yep. And I think the title was even used in a different movie by uh, a different song by White Zombie because Rob Zombie is such
0: a famous fan of hammer he loved yeah he's one of us he's a monster kid he's one of us
8: oh yes he's definitely one of us so this michael rayner in the beginning
0: uh you know from the start that he's the bad guy so i i didn't when i got into this and then this whole thing starts and like okay so he's doing a ceremony at the church he's wearing the priest garb cool what 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 did he just say Mm -hmm. and oh wait now it's 20 years later what just happened (laughs) <laughs> That's right.
8: And so we then get the story where, the, you know, this Nastasia Kinsky, who is either 14 or 16 and dressed in a nun's habit, is living in this convent that has some unusual stuff that she doesn't seem to know about. And she's as innocent as you get. She doesn't know London. You find out that she's a member of a group called the Children of the Lord. And the phrasing of that comes in later when you figure it out. Mm-hmm. Um, she's coming from Germany with this guy. We then cut to a book signing and a gallery where Richard Whitmark, and he's playing a character named John Varney, who is a writer who seems to be an expert on the supernatural. And Honor Blackman is his agent, on a fountain, which I guess is a tribute to Molly Fountain, who was supposed to be the hero of the book and the story, and her boyfriend, Anthony Valentine, uh, David Kennedy, mm-hmm. who is owns the art gallery. And in walks an old figure that, of modern fans, really, of Denim Elliott.
0: I had no idea he was in this movie yeah. either. See I'm like, what, that, what, what's Marcus Brody doing in a Hammer film? Of right. course, he's in a Hammer film. He's he was British. He was in the UK, and everybody appeared in a Hammer film at some point. In a
8: Hammer film, and
0: he played, he's played Dracula. I mean, he's done horror stuff before, but oh, I didn't done expect done to see him in he, He'll do it.
8: He used to do anything that worked, but he did some major movies at the time. And Denim Elliott is this character Henry Beddows, who is Nastasha Kinsky's father, Catherine Beddows' father, and he. Had her at this place in Bavaria with this uh, nunnery and all that led by Michael Rayner, a.k.a. Christopher Lee. And he he begs basically uh, John Barney to help him with his daughter, save her, rescue her and pick her up at the station at the airport and keep her safe. And he does it because it sounds like a good story which is the stupidest motivation i've heard in a hammer movie in many years. Yeah, i'm going to involve myself with satanists because it's a good story. And he even says to to honor black men and anthony valentine's characters. Well, you know, 98% of satanists are just, you know, people looking
0: for drugs and sex. Yeah, pretty much. And to be honest, when he's like, "Yo, he told me there'd be a good story in it." I don't think he really bought into the, yeah, like you were just saying. Well, oh, no, he was Didn't playing really...
8: it like he thought it really was the 98%.
0: Yeah, he's like, it's the 98%. I'm going to get some interesting background material here and, you know, whatever. I'll make a new book.
8: And there's this guy that sort of heard uh, Catherine's attendant that's taking her there. And meanwhile, Denim Elliott is hiding out in his mansion and playing with a gun and, you know, pretending that he's going away to the police and all sorts of odd stuff that honestly the way they presented it was just all over the place so varney richard whitmark basically snatches the girl away and brings her back to his apartment and she's fully you got to understand she's fully dressed as a nun the whole time. yeah and she's like very comfortable in that and you know, brings her back to his place and gives her some food and puts her in his bed. And while he's doing some research, you know, and all that. We cut to Bavaria where the the nunnery was, where this woman is giving birth to a baby and tied up while she's oh. doing it.
0: My goodness. Yes. What, What? Is he? You, exactly. you could have warned me here, dude. I didn't. You want, really could. Have, you didn't want to. Yeah. Listen want to. to you. I wanted you to
8: experience <laughs> the full horror of
0: what you're watching. <laughs> <laughs> it, okay. Listeners. I, I know I said this already once before. I'm going to say it again. There is some uncomfortable stuff in here. And this, this is, is not this the is kind my- of thing. Yeah. This is not the kind of thing we normally talk about here on monster kid radio, but like I've always said, it's a hammer film. We're gonna talk about it, but my goodness, um, this is this is rough. This was
8: rough. Now, this woman is giving birth and it's pretty grotesque in the way they did it. It presented it in a very grotesque way. But at the same time, while this is happening, Nastasha Kinsky is moaning and rolling around on the bed.
0: It's this weird mix of is she having a good dream or is she having a terrible dream? It's just they, it's, it's really hard to tell. and uh, Yeah, they
8: really, the, the director, uh, Peter Sykes, I don't think he knew what he was doing with this one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, I'm watching this, and it's like, you don't seem to have an idea. This is a Hammer movie,
0: man. What are you doing? Well, and, you know, this is towards the end of Hammer, and Hammer knew it. I think, I know, I, I have to believe that Hammer knew that they were near the end. So they were grasping for straws, trying to find a way to make money, to stay relevant. They knew because they had trouble getting money to even finish this movie. So they had to know something was up. They got to do something to try to stay relevant. And this is the seventies. We're in the throes of The Exorcist. We're in the throes of movies being more and more, for lack of a better term, explicit. So we, we, I think they knew. So I, I, I think they kind of knew what they were doing there.
8: Yeah, they probably were, and they went the wrong way, in my opinion, because it was just yeah. gro- it was uncomfortable and grotesque. But I will give you that, yeah, for sure. I'm I, not, not going to argue that. I, this is also why this is a, even though I'm a Dennis Wheatley fan and I have read all of his uh, occult novels and his nonfiction on occult and things like that, I've only seen this movie like three, four times, even though it's in my collection, whereas mm-hmm. I've seen The Devil Rides Out several hundred times, I'd say it's because this just one made a lot of mistakes and this was one of them. So the baby is born and we don't see it. And the woman who gave birth to the baby is murdered. They say, you're going to die now. And they basically inject her with something and kill her.
0: And she was okay with it. It's like she she knew. She
8: knew. She was fine. She, She even said in a very german accent that the only thing that matters is giving birth to this baby that was all it was Mm -hmm. and it was very strange the way they presented it and the next day we get a visit from honor blackman and her boyfriend
0: anthony valentine his agent her boyfriend you were saying that they're very dismissive of her i mean they acknowledge her Really, they're just kind of there to, I don't know, like they're just hanging out. And it's almost borderline disrespectful because Honor Blackman's character is like, I want to wear that. I, mean, <laughs> I want to dress up like a nun. You know, it's like, well, what is going on here? I don't, ah, okay. And she even does like say, you, you
8: want to dress up like me to dress up like this to her boyfriend? It's like, what? What are you it's doing? Like, really? You know, what's double funny though is she ended up playing a mother superior in a very famous play, Nonsense.
0: <laughs> well you know
8: so it it, it's, it was just a very strange set of circumstances and just a little and also following that is they have this Varney doesn't want her to read one of his books it's something about the devil and the minute she's out of the they're telling her you know just talk to her take care of her and all that and the minute he's out of the room she's walking off with one of his books and reading it yeah, part of the problem is, is that we're dropped into this sequence of this John Barney, American living in London, writing horror novels about demons and devil cults and all that.
0: We actually know nothing about this guy. We really don't. How he gets involved in this whole thing? Like, how did Marcus Brody, which I know is not his name, but that's how I, I can't think of him any other way. Henry. How Beddows. does Marcus? Bro- yeah. How does Henry Beddoes? know this guy to trust him enough to help him with his daughter and how does it just there's a lot of things that just happen because they have to happen to make the story work and i i can't tell if that's a scripting thing i know that the screenwriters were not really a big fan of the original source material of the wheatley's novel and they thought they had to make it better somehow so i i don't know if it's a scripting thing i don't know if it's a directing thing i lean more heavily toward the fact that they didn't have a lot of time and money to now, really flesh that was this thing my out.
8: opinion, but they still managed to come up with the most demented looking crucifix I have ever seen in my life.
0: Yeah. And um, what did they call it? Astaroth? Was that the name of the demon As- they were? Astaroth. Now, Astaroth is an ancient name. The
8: original belief is that it was based in the ancient uh, Mesopotamian deity Astaray or a star day, depending on how you pronounce it. I'm always wrong, I'm sure. Now, Astaroth is a great duke of hell, according to uh, the Pseudo-Demonomicon, according to the Lesser Key of Solomon's Ars Goetica section, which ha- which lists the demons that Solomon had enslaved and the Infernal Dictionary, as well as the Grand Grimoire. So there's a pretty universal belief that he was one of the three most powerful beings in hell. Some say that he's the treasurer of hell, others say he's like the chancellor. A great duke of hell that appears as an angelic man with a crown, riding a dragon and holding a uh, serpent as a wand they also have images of him in certain texts as a fallen angel with a serpent as a wand as well in frank uh
0: i have to disagree with you yes because astaroth is really who made the star that the kids and murder she wrote angela Lazbury use to go to the cartoon land Bed knobs and broomsticks, isn't it? It
8: is that too. I was gonna go It
0: is <laughs> it's star a Disney of character.
8: <laughs> is it a Disney film, people? <laughs> yes, absolutely. It totally is the Star Masteros.
0: Jessica yeah. Fletcher. That's the character's name. Yes, yes Jessica they, Fletcher from Murder She Wrote. It yeah. takes
8: somebody like me who studies demonology in this sense to know that how demented that really is. So uh,
0: I loved that movie. Ben Ops and Broom 6 is one of my favorite Disney films of all time. I, I love may that even talk movie. about it. On- There's
8: nothing, I will never say a negative thing about that movie ever.
0: Yeah. I love that movie.
8: And I've always, I still to this day do. It's probably mm-hmm. one of my favorites also. It'll
0: never top Jungle Book though. Jungle Book's always done. Uh, that makes sense for you. <laughs> that somehow makes perfect sense for you. Yeah, it does. Doesn't it? Yeah. Uh,
8: so, instead of showing these images that are kind of disturbing in their own way, the Astaroth image that we get is a golden man with a blank face and golden hair, spread eagle, and riding, that's the only way I can kind of put it, an upside down cross. It's... it's And when I say riding, I don't mean in the horse
0: sense. Yeah, it's it's a disturbing image. It's a grotesque, disgusting image that had no purpose in being in this movie. There's a lot of things in here that I feel like. Well, I I didn't. uh, I don't
8: argue with Dennis Wheatley's feelings about what they did to his book because this had nothing to do with it.
5: He had, oh, yeah. In
8: his book, he had this French marquis and a uh, an elderly canon of the of the church as the Satanists. And while they're not nice people and pretty horrible people, they're not grotesque like this. I mean, this was just weird. And they're trying to get this Catherine back and eventually we get to see how the the baby was born they had a one of the most gro- weird not grotesque weird sex scenes i've ever seen in my life it's a
0: sacrificial scene in which <laughs> oh boy um yeah they're actually, i don't do um, we even want to talk too much more about it because it's pretty awful <sighs> Of all the things in
8: this world I never really needed to see was
0: a sex scene with Denim Elliot. You know what? I'm just going to cut everything we just said about the sex scene and just use that line.
8: Yeah. Probably. Oh, I man. Mean, it was just so. It, it, the, the whole thing about this movie is that they, they it it was so <sighs> all over the place. They didn't know whether they were making a horror movie or cult movie or uh, exploitation movie. So it's all over the place. And when Nastasha Kinsky remembers this stuff, remember, you had to remember. Even though she became a very good actress, she was not back then. She was just a little. She was a kid. This is like her second film. This is like her second film, and she's screaming the same words over and over. And then Richard Whitmark does the most cliche thing possible to bring her out of it by smacking her across the mouth. Yeah, and it's like really, she sees in the glass the baby
0: <laughs> okay it looked so okay it, this this movie is it's it's intense right it's trying to give us this sense of chaos and magic and dread and here's a little puppet in the mirror like what what are you doing the little puppet with the plastic tongue Oh, man.
8: And she's screaming (laughs) her head off. And instead of, you know, pulling her out of the room, Richard Whitmark picks up the mirror and smashes it to the ground. Well, yeah. And then she sees other things in other places and he smacks her and she's unconscious. And my response when I saw it again last night was, well, that was odd. So that's the baby. And apparently it's Astaroth. It's Astaroth in baby form. Which shows that their budget was about 50 cents when it came to making this
0: puppet. Well, you know, they wanted to go back and redo some of the effects. And the people that were providing the money were like, yeah, um, nah. Honestly believe they
8: like just went to a kit store and found a puppet and stripped all the felt off of it and
0: said, hey, paint it red. Which is too bad to say. It's horrible to say because this is less Bowie or Bowie. I can never remember how it's pronounced who's done a lot of hammer stuff and good hammer stuff that did the special effects and I don't know if he was involved with this puppet or not but it it really does borderline break the mood of the movie there are some things in the movie that take me completely out of it like when you start thinking about her being 14 16 it takes me completely out of it oh yeah in one way but in a completely different way when you see kind of the ridiculous of the puppet um you can't get it it takes it me out... you can't get yeah it it's like it's it's not
8: like, it's not frightening. It's not objectionable. It's just cheap looking.
0: Yeah. And it it reminds you, and maybe this was part of the design. I don't know. Maybe it was on purpose. But it reminds you that the real threat is Christopher Lee, not this otherworldly thing. And I don't know if it reminds you in the best way. It really it was. Is kind of silly looking. Yeah. So. Yeah.
8: Yeah. It was a grotesque scene and eventually they get her back. And you find out the second half of the story is that. It seems that, and they didn't present this well, Denim Elliott's wife, Catherine's mother, was a member of the Satanist group. And the baby had to be born and baptized in its mother's blood, which is very satanic. It works for any anything there, and it wasn't done badly. But Denim Elliott is never portrayed as a member of the group. He sort of was like hiding in the church, watching this ceremony about his baby daughter and they pull him out and say, well, you're one of us now. Yep. And they show him this medal. They have this whole ghostly scene that makes no, not a lick of sense uh, with his dead wife. And he's now officially one of them, even though he's not one of them, which again, doesn't make any sense uh, the way this movie is blowing. And they say that if he does any, he ever goes against them. He's going to be burned because the pact will burn him to death. That's a setup because, you know, somebody's going to get burned to death because they're, they're selling that from the day one. And
0: hey, hey, you know what? That's that's storytelling 101, right? Yeah, it was so, very, so good for them. Yeah, they, they, you know, OK, I wonder who's going to
8: die. It's going to be him or no. They had shown at the church earlier where it was now a Salvation Army place. <laughs> and the woman who was the head of the Salvation Army is Frances Latour who is best known to movie fans from the Harry Potter franchise as uh, the head of the French school, that was That's Frances Latour. And she had actually been in a TV show with the one who played uh, Mr. Dursley. They'd been in a TV show together, a comedy where they played like a hippie couple that were trying to adjust to regular life. I saw like an episode, and I only remember that the father used to talk to the baby, like he was talking to a full-grown adult. And I think they called like the baby like yog or something like that. It's like all right, whatever. That was it. But just a little side there. So they're trying to get Catherine back. They use a little bit of the voodoo
0: hypnosis kind of thing, and she kills Honor Blackman. You don't see the actual death now. You've seen some gore up until this point, right? Co- sort of. You've seen some. Pretty gruesome looking bullet hits. I didn't expect the bullet hits to be as gruesome as they were when it happened. Um, It felt like these were effect shots done by technicians who knew what they were doing, but weren't used to doing bullet hits. So the way it was shot, the way it was constructed, the way the splatter happened, I thought it was convincing. But it's like, um, you guys really aren't used to doing this. You're usually more stakes in the heart and things like that. But okay, cool. Good on you. But yeah, you don't see the actual penetration of the weapon into Honor Blackman's body. You do see the aftermath. You see it later, but you don't actually see the actual act happening, which I think worked. I think that worked. One of the oddest
8: parts of that is Varney comes home, Richard Bar- Mark comes home, and Catherine is gone, and you know David, the, the boyfriend, is there and crying over the dead body. And he's swearing to kill Catherine and all of that stuff. And they have to go and get this information from Danny Elliott's character. And then they just leave, leaving Honor Blackman's dead body
0: in the apartment. His character turned from, damn you, Vernie, you got my wife, my girlfriend killed, what, for your book, to I'm going with you. I'm going with you. I'm crying. You got my girl. It's all your fault, but I'm going to go with you and... So when that happened, though, like at first I thought, OK, this is a weird character turn. But then he also has absolutely no emotion behind his eyes when he says, I'm going with you. I'm going to get Catherine. Yeah, no, it, it, was, it, it was the worst it, performance of this movie. Well, I, I, you know, I thought that at first, too. But then I started thinking he wants revenge. He wants to go. He doesn't want to help Vernie. He wants revenge on yeah, Catherine. And while Vernie didn't see that that shocked me a little bit like well do you not see that your friend is coming with you because he he wants her too but not for the same reason <laughs> you know so but you know in the end he gets what right
8: yeah, and, and he's a one victim. thing we didn't mention is he uh, they have an info dump partially through this uh, story where mm-hmm. vernie now mind you it's been stated from the beginning this man writes horror novels Goes to the church and he's like best buddies with the with the bishop who excommunicated. <laughs> and they're like talking like old friends. Like, oh, yeah, it's all. Oh, well, he excommunicated him. The church? Really? They're going to tell a horror writer this.
0: Well, and not only that, but the, they've, they've obviously told him stuff in the past because he's like, I want the book of Azroth. I know you have it, you know, in the black room. Like, how do you know? Like, yeah. how many times have you stopped by here for consultations for your horror fiction? Yeah, well, oh, hey, you know what? I would love access to that. Yeah. You, you want to give me a key to some secret library that some church has about some, you know, I'm, I'm all in. Yeah. But I, it, I don't it, believe it, 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 the churches really have that. But here's you know. the
8: thing this, the, everybody on earth knows the secret library of the Vatican exists. The, the Vatican. That's true. Won't even say it exists, though. This is the church, no matter what church. They're not even going to be the book of Azeroth. There's no such thing. That would be their normal. Instead, they go downstairs into the basement
5: <laughs> where there are <laughs> chained up
8: books and a non-priest sitting there reading a book. They're like, what book are you on? Oh, the book of Azeroth. And he's like, oh, okay. Well, just the most unholy book possible. That's fine. And while Verney is going through this book, this bishop is looking through different books and texts in this black library. Like, oh, the the Necronomicon, let's take a look. You know, he's just looking through this casually leafing through these forbidden tomes.
0: So in terms of reality and realism, I realize I'm watching a horror movie from Hammer. I get that. But in terms of reality and realism, no, that, that completely flies in the face of would that really happen? However, the fiction creator and consumer in me loves the idea of a hero consulting some forbidden tomes for assistance and fighting evil. So I love Dr. Strange. It's he, why I, I like The Devil Rides Out. I love that stuff. But in terms of is it real? No, I love that stuff,
8: too. But the man has an entire (laughs) library.
0: Yeah, it's a bit much. It's a bit much. You know, I
8: have. (laughs) I am a writer of horror fiction. I write this kind of stuff, and I have thirteen of those books. (laughs) I the reason I can quote the pseudo Demonomicon and the Book of Abra Mellon and all that kind of stuff is because I own them. I've read them. It's like you can buy these things for for
0: like five bucks on Amazon now. Now, granted, it's the 70s. You can't just go online and order yourself a copy of the Anarchist Cookbook or whatever. I get that. I, but but, but <laughs> come so, on, man. There were, but come there on. were <laughs> things they could have done to make it a little bit. They, it
8: take The scenes are info dump scenes. And info dump they scenes really are. are invariably. You either have to accomplish something with them or... You have to understand them. And all we find out, now we find out that he's the, that he believed in Astaroth and he wanted to bring the devil to the Earth so that everything is better. And it didn't make a lick of sense again, as I say. But it's fine. It is. It's a movie. We, we're fine with nonsensical nonsense.
0: That's the fun of this. Well, and the thing about info dumps is they have to be handled so well. It requires such a deft hand to not come across as, pay attention to the next 10 minutes of the movie because we're going to explain to you how everything works. You know, it really has to be handled in such a, a right uh, with and such it, finesse, and it really. And this movie, yeah, they left a the lot out. Oh yeah, yeah, and, and I you think, know where I'm coming with this. <laughs> so you're talking about how the end? Yeah, now, I'm in the end. We'll, get to, <laughs> we'll get
8: to that. The end. It's like, oh, where did that come from? It's a. It's. Well, I read people. the book. <laughs> okay. So they go to the church where the Salvation Army owns it, and. They have all sorts of ghostly, spooky stuff. The boyfriend, uh, David Kennedy, Anthony Valentine, who's swearing revenge, gets a bump on the head and becomes Denim Elliott's character, Henry Beto, which is not explained.
0: Well, it's magic. It's woo,
8: spooky. And when he takes the uh, they find the pact, it's like a half moon gold necklace with some writing on it. And Varney takes it out of the altar. He snatches it away and tells him, don't do it. And he dies. He gets burned up in flames and there's only ash left.
0: Okay. I thought that scene worked out really well. Actually. No, no, that was I thought, fun. That, you I know, liked it. If you're going it, to, it's a great scene, very well done. It
8: is. It flows very well. And even with a smiling Christopher Lee sort of watching it and all that, it worked very, very well. So Dan Elliott, in return for getting this, he tells him where the whole ceremony is and what they're planning on doing, we find out literally in dialogue. It's at this uh, graveyard, and he sacrifices, uh, Christopher Lee's character, Rainer, sacrifices the baby Asteros. And before that, we have literally the most uncomfortable scene in the movie Period. I, I I don't even Not know, know if I want to talk it. about gross. that. Yeah, because it's, it's pretty awful. And it doesn't work.
0: It's pretty awful. And
8: then it's followed by the second motion, which is the full naked scene.
0: Yeah. Uh, but it, neither, guys, it, it on, doesn't man. make
8: any sense to the movie. It didn't work. So oh, why are you doing this, folks? Why? It's just terrible. Mm-hmm. So they basically, the idea is that he's going to sac- he sacrifices the baby and basically Kills the most rubber-looking baby doll you'll ever see in your life. <laughs> he he does this, and he's going to anoint the Virgin Nastasia Kinski, sacrifice her, and become the power of Astaroth, Which make,
0: as I keep saying, no sense. I didn't get any of that. You know, that's one of the things that I love about these movies. So is, and you don't see it in all of them, but a lot of these movies in which. The villains are some sort of Satanist, a cultist, doing something with unholy powers. Their undoing isn't the fact that they're doing something evil. Their undoing is like, well, I'm going to take the power for myself instead. Right. And, then, and
8: that <laughs> like part that's, of it made sense. Just the explanation yeah, and I, and I what like that. Doing yeah.
0: made no sense. Yeah, the the how and the yeah, everything else was like really so but yeah. First thing, the
8: cult has shrunk from like twelve people to like two now.
0: mm Hmm.
8: And he had sacrificed somebody else. Christopher Lee had a woman basically drain herself of blood
0: so she could use the blood. And she did that willingly.
6: Mm-hmm. So he could
0: use Everything that. Everything has to be of their own accord. They yeah. had to do it all. It you know, they had to be willing. Yeah. So
8: he's going to do this ceremony, and he surrounds the whole area with her blood. And a lot of blood. Varney comes, and he has no weapons, so he picks up a stone. He's going armed with a rock. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the guy who's circling has a gun. Yet, he overpowers it. Well, yeah. Okay. And he's <laughs> my, that was my response when I saw it. I said, like, all right. You know, hey, look, Rambo once once knocked down a helicopter with rocks.
0: Yeah, hey, Rambo defeated all of Vietnam with a bow and arrow and, and mud. So I mean this is totally realistic. Yeah, it's clearly within movie realms. I mean, that's that's
8: real, right? Right. He comes and confronts Christopher Lee, who's the only one left, says you can't enter because it's in the blood of my follower. He says, I have the blood of your follower, and it doesn't matter. And then Christopher Lee says, Yes, but Astaroth is the demon who is element is Flint, and this is a holy
0: Flint area. Like, really? What? Yeah, and we're like, so why, why? why? How How do we know, like, why is that important? Oh, that's okay. It's in the book Vastrop. He tells us he read it.
8: <sighs> yeah, but we didn't, It that came literally, uh, that's the first time it's mentioned, and Varney picks up his, has his rock with the blood on it and says, I have the blood of your follower, and it's made of flint. So it's like, nah, nah. So he throws it at his face, and Christopher Lee doesn't duck, Like anybody would. And he gets knocked in the head. And he, (laughs) meanwhile, he had tried to entice him with the naked Nastasha Kinski. No more said. (sighs) Gross, gross, gross. And he picks up her off the altar. And there's some wind effects. And he forces his way out. And when he turns around, everything's gone. The look on Nastasha Kinski's face is more like, oh, I think she's still possessed by something now. So. And that's the end of the hope, movie, folks.
0: It literally ends there. And there are some reports that this movie really does just kind of end. That they ran out of money, they ran out of time, they ran out of interest. I don't know. But they get to this scene, they kind of wrap it all up real quick. The end. Roll credit. It's literally, he's fighting to walk past this barrier of blood
8: and weird light that's really just flashing lights and steps over and it's all over and he turns around, puts her down, turns around, and there's nothing there.
0: Dun, 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 dun,
8: dun, yeah. Okay, then. Because this movie has elements that I like. And I will say that there's so much exploitation in it that I honestly, there are times I agree with Dennis Wheatley. There are times I disagree with Dennis Wheatley. This is one of the few times I'm endorsing Dennis Wheatley's view that this movie was just nothing like anything he would have ever written or wanted. Yeah. You know, the original movie, the middle movie, the original book, excuse me, they found out, you know, they figured out they uh, Catherine was possessed because In the daytime she's this sweet Kind of retiring Frightened girl and at night she becomes Kind of loose and Drinking and having fun and All of that stuff Which is really not an indication that A person is possessed but according to Dennis Wheatley she is So Molly Fountain threw a crucifix To her and she caught it And screamed and dropped it and it's like, Oh, You've been possessed by the devil so this is not exactly his best book either. As a Dennis Wheatley fan and a nut of for his stuff, I can say that it's understandably the last movie he, he allowed, but I would love to see them try some of the his movies with some rewrites. I mean, he had a big problem with people from South America and, and Africa because he was an arch conservative from Britain of his time. Mm -hmm. But he tried to somewhat moderate himself. There's plenty of his occult stuff, and he has all this uh, interesting historical fiction. So, you know, people, it's something to experience when you see To the the Devil a Daughter, but I wouldn't recommend it as a regular viewing.
0: So here's what I think. Um, Like I said, I've never seen the movie before. I knew about its notoriety. I knew about the scene. Even knowing about the scene wasn't enough to prepare me for what I saw. Mm-hmm. But because yeah, there's a couple things that are like, oh, that's that's too far. But he- here's the thing. There's a lot to like here. Oh, yes. I really like the everyday, every man versus the forces of evil and having to consult books and ancient libraries for assistance. That's why I really like The Devil Rides Out. Yes. A lot. And Christopher Lee's performance in this. Is sadistic. Oh. It is really good. Oh, as much as I great.
8: rip into this movie and I rip into it as a Dennis Wheatley fan, you've never heard me say anything negative about him. There's exactly. a specific reason, and you caught one of the things I was pointing. I was going to point out. Christopher Lee's performance is exceptional in a not so good movie.
0: It's it's fantastic. When he talks to Catherine
8: in these different scenes, she genuinely comes off as a gentle, kindly priest. And when she's talking about the children of the Lord, you you can kind of believe, hey, maybe it's not so bad. Maybe there's other people involved the way it's kind of set up. But their lord is Astaroth, and his performance in the scenes when he is even being nice to his congregation as he's yeah. killing them was so mm-hmm. perfectly done. He hit every note, and he's a friend, he was a friend of Dennis Wheatley.
0: Yeah, he was way. a big proponent of Hammer doing Dennis Wheatley films. So I'm curious as to what went through their heads and how that relationship was when this movie was completed because
8: uh well it never really went any negativity because he knew that you know christopher lee didn't write it or anything like that but he had a problem with the concept of people doing his movies at that point and you got to remember also dennis wheatley at that point was getting up there in years he died in 77 so it's not too much longer there anyway he had a different view of the world in his thing. So he knew that Christopher Lee had nothing to do with it, but he also was not going to allow this to happen again
0: in his lifetime.
8: And I can't object to it either, but all I can say is that, you know, somebody once said to me, what if the world's worst filmmaker offered you money to make one of your books?
0: Yeah. What would you do, Frank? What would you do? If somebody came along,
8: What what would Frank, Frank needs the money. (laughs) <laughs> Honestly in thinking about it You know going back even though I'm a Wheatley fan I don't really recommend this movie To people I recommend it as a curiosity With The understanding of what you're getting into When you see it um, It's interesting It has good portions Christopher Lee does an excellent Job uh, Denim Elliot does a serviceable job Nastasha Kinski Was frankly exploited In my opinion in this movie uh, she looks very pretty for a teenager. Mm-hmm. She looks like she's in her twenties. She does. If they had kept her fully clothed and everything else, I would have had less issues with it. It could have done with several more rewrites. You should see it as a curiosity, or if you're a fan of Devil Cult movies or Dennis Wheatley. But unless you're a completist like myself, you're not going to want to have a copy of this in your
0: <laughs> in your collection. And
8: I can tell you, my copy has only been used two or three times since I got it.
0: So, he, okay, yeah, I, I have such mixed thoughts about it because there are parts that I really like. Um, I, I think once you're able to kind of divorce yourself from some of the less favorable aspects of this, there is some decent stuff going on here. Now, yeah, you know, they could have done more with the budget. They could have used a bigger budget. There are some issues with some of the performances and motivations. It's like they forgot to add motivations oh, yes. to all the characters. You know, other than Christopher Lee is evil and the other ones aren't. It's like, well, okay, we need a little bit more than that. And I understand Hammer wanting to be part of this, you know, the Exorcist, Beyond the Door, Abby, you know, all of this stuff with, with trying to get into the Exorcist, Devil, Occult films. I get that too. I just feel like they really for lack of a better term and i know this is a strong word they really bastardized the source material based on what you said based on the interviews and reviews that i've seen dennis Wheatley deserved a lot yes, better than did. this and they did make his
8: material very objectionable when most of his books while well, You know, having devils and all that have a more bloodless quality to them, not really exploitation material. Mm -hmm. The Devil Rides Out, though it has segments that are not based on the book, he liked it because it was a good movie. It was enjoyable. It's still enjoyable. You can watch it a hundred times and I have and really get pleasure out of every moment of it. Um, Even parts that are a little, you know, dated and silly, like some of the effects, they're still very, it's a good Movie. It's well written. It's believable. Christopher Lee does an exquisitely good job, and Charles Gray is absolutely spectacular as Mercata uh, in that movie. There's there's a lot there. Oh yeah. Whereas in this movie, you get Christopher Lee doing a great job because he's Christopher Lee, and most of the other people that surround him, including Richard Whitmark, really kind of just phoned in his pod.
0: Yeah, he he didn't really bring much other than I'm the hero, but. I was willing to go along with it. He has a charisma that I he, was okay or, with. He
8: can be one of the best.
0: But yeah, the motivations were still not baked into the script. We're not and also, really baked we don't, you know, he,
8: there's a sequence in this movie where he is sitting there and he's working on, you know, he asked her about her date of birth and stuff like that. And he's working on like probably a, he says he's an astrology expert or something like that. And he's got all of these interesting looking figures and stuff like that all written out in this paper. And they just sort of left that there, that we don't have a clue what he just figured out. All he had to do was turn to Honor Blackman and said, this is part of that 2% I talked about. And according to my, my investigation, she may be in more danger than we even know. And be like, oh, how, and she, would, she could say simply, how do you know that? And he could lift his paper and say, I can't explain it now, but just believe me, this is bad. And you've gotten 10 times more than an info dump would have done. Yeah, just a scene like that. It just comes down to the fact that sometimes if you're going to make a low-budget movie like this, and that is fine. I would have had no problem with that.
0: You have to have a cohesive script, and they didn't. And if you don't have it, you're not getting anywhere. And even if you watch the opening credits, you know something's up. Because in the opening credits, it tells you it's based on the novel by Dennis Wheatley screenplay by so-and-so adaptation by so-and-so why is there a screenplay and an adaptation credit for two different people for something based on a novel i saw that and i'm like oh something something happened here and then i start looking into it and like oh yep okay i get it now the original screenplay you know screenwriter didn't really think the novel was great so he had to fix it and then somebody else came in and did this uh Too many hands, somebody cooks in the writing kitchen. And You know, there's things to enjoy
8: in this movie. Uh, I honestly wish I could spend a little time cutting it, you know, as an editor, though I'm not an editor. I wish I could cut some sequences out of it and rearrange it a little so that it would
0: make a little more sense. You know, they did that with. Well, they didn't cut the. They didn't edit it, but they did enhance the effects with the devil rights out. Yes, and it worked. And that that kind of works. So you could at least fix the puppet man. You could cut out all the objectionable scenes, mm-hmm. and
8: make it at least a little bit more cohesive and interesting. A film for the watcher It would still have a lot of issues with it, but it wouldn't make you uncomfortable the way that this one does in the wrong way. If it made you uncomfortable, you know, because it's demonic stuff and all that, uh, great. That That's what's intended, but this makes you uncomfortable in the wrong way. in the way that's like, I don't, I don't really think I should be watching this. I don't think anybody should be watching this. That's what I got out of it and I always got out of it. And that's also why I don't really pay any attention to this movie too often. I kind of leave it in the, it's like, you know, it's there.
0: I was a little, I'm surprised to hear you say that because when I brought this up as something to talk about, you seemed really excited about it. I'm like, oh, great. Well, I'm excited about Dennis Wheatley. Okay, there we (laughs) go. There we go. Fair enough. It's got enough in it that I can keep it in my
8: collection and enjoy it. Mm -hmm. But I'm I'm always the one that's saying to people, you better go in understanding what you're seeing before you see anything, Mm -hmm. you know, because if you don't, Uh, you're going to have an unpleasant few moments.
0: If nothing else, you've got a great burn effect. You've got some great good versus evil stuff. You've got some decent sound design. I thought the music and the sound design was really well done. Uh, And, you know, some good special effects for the most part, if you don't count the puppet, eh, some decent stuff in here. It's just got a lot of indecent stuff too (laughs) along the way. And I keep giggling and laughing about it. And it's not because I find it amusing. It makes me a little uncomfortable. And I think if you watch this and you don't feel that uncomfortableness, well, yeah, I don't know what to say about that.
8: Right. And look, it, the sets that they used and the locations were spectacular. Oh, yeah. I mean, the set for that final sequence where in The Sacrifice, mm-hmm. it it was absolutely wonderful. Was oh, perfect.
0: sure. Yeah, yeah.
8: And the, you know, the place where they had all the the books, it looks like a place where you would hide really terrible books and stuff. There was a lot of, I can give a ton of positives, but as a viewer in watching the movie, it's like, uh, I kept going like, why, (laughs) why did you do that? Yeah. And the fact is it's one of these things that it's going to be, forever known as one of the last movies and one of the worst in the hammer list. Mm-hmm. And this is w- when they still made movies like,
0: uh, you know, the comedy about buses and things too. So, <laughs>
3: <don't>...
0: <laughs> Yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, I think there was one more film after this from hammer. It was their version of the lady vanishes, uh, from the seventies. And I think Elliot Gould's in that. Isn't he?
8: Yes. There was a lot of Americans in that one yeah. too. Yeah.
0: And then Hammer would go dormant for a while uh, And
8: you know what it, it is what it is It's uh, I, I keep it in the collection because it's Hammer And it's Dennis Wheatley More for the second one than the first But I'm pretty honest About my view of it The, the fact is that Dennis Wheatley Only really has one movie That you can say hey that's a good movie And that's The Devil Rides Out The others,
0: Uh, yeah. eh. I mean, he's there's only been like four or five of them. And what was the other Hammer film? Uh, Lost Continent. Lost
8: Continent, Continent, which is
0: terrible. I remember that one being a, really? I remember kind of liking that one. I have a copy of it. uh, Being
8: the completest I am when it comes to uh, Dennis Wheatley, it took me years to find a copy of it. And I found it in a convention. Somebody saw I had two Dennis Wheatley books and they say, you like one? I have one of his movies and pulled it out. It's like, okay, I was looking for that. And I handed him 10 bucks before I even thought about
0: it. I remember kind of liking it. But yeah, if I had to rank, The Devil Rides Out is right there on top. Oh, yeah. Right there on uh, top. So, yeah. It's it's way in above everything else because
8: it's actually just a plain enjoyable movie. Mm -hmm. You know, it's got a lot of positives and the cast in it are just spectacular. There's always inherently a problem when you make a movie about cults and stuff like that. So, you know, you you get what you get. How
4: does she do that?
2: Because she's a witch. That's the sort of thing witches do. Follow the advance!
4: in the most enchanting role of her career, the incomparable Angela Lansbury, as Miss Eglantine Price, the apprentice witch, who's taking a correspondence course in witchcraft, and funny man David Tomlinson as the lovable London con man. Please note the
6: name, ladies and gentlemen, Professor Emilius Brown. I am here to...
4: In Walt Disney Productions' super magical motion picture, bed knobs and Broomsticks.
0: I like you better as a rabbit, Charlie.
4: Together, they lead three homeless Cockney Waves. They take us
8: to the island of Naboombo.
4: Through a world of magic, more fantastic than anything you've ever seen before.
0: That brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. I want to thank everybody for listening, for downloading, for sharing tweets and retweeting Facebook posts. I think I say that every time and I get it wrong unintentionally every single time, but you know what I mean. Thank you for spreading the word about Monster Kid Radio. If any of your friends, family, anybody you want to share the Monster Kid Radio experience with are interested, send them over to the website at monsterkidradio.net. Here you're going to find every episode. All the contact information that has been mentioned earlier, like this. You can call and leave a voicemail for Monster Kid Radio at
2: 503-810-5MKR. That's 503-810-5657.
1: Or you can send an email to the podcast. MonsterKidRadio at gmail.com is the email address. That's MonsterKidRadio at gmail.com.
0: As well as links to everything we have going on. Our Facebook page, our Facebook group, our Twitter, our Patreon, our Discord our Twitch, our, uh, what's the other one that starts with our Reddit. We've got everything over there. If you want to know more about what we've talked about here on the show, plus you can find the Amazon affiliate links. Now the first Amazon affiliate link, it's the silhouette of the Frankenstein monster with the Amazon a in it. If you click on that, that just takes you to Amazon in general. Use that when you start searching for something to buy on Amazon, or if you want to buy something specifically that we've talked about here on the show, there's buttons for that as well. Every time you do this, you help out the podcast by taking a few pennies out of Jeff Bezos' pocket and putting them into Monster Kid Radios. I appreciate all the support. Even if you do something like this, that doesn't cost you any extra. Of course, you can become a patron or donate through coffee if you're on the Twitch stream on the weekend. Speaking of the Twitch stream, how's that for a segue? It's like I've been doing this for over 500 episodes. Speaking of the Twitch stream, this Saturday at twitch.tv slash Monster Kid Radio, starting at 11 a.m. Pacific, we are showing wintry monster movies. We are trying to say farewell to winter here at Monster Kid Radio HQ, Central Headquarters, the Mad Lab. I, I, we've come up with names before, but I really need to come up with something specific. But anyway, we've been trying to say goodbye to winter up here. In fact, we just had some unexpected snow the other day, messed me up both with my seasonal depression and my allergies slash asthma. It was not fun. Anyway, we're trying to say goodbye to all of this, and we're showing wintry monster movies this weekend. Things like Snow Beast, uh, Half Human, and a handful of others. So join us at twitch.tv slash monsterkidradio this Saturday. It's free to watch. It's free to follow. You can even subscribe to the channel for free if you have Amazon Prime and you haven't used your monthly Prime gaming benefit, because you get that if you're a member of Amazon Prime as part of your benefits there. You can follow along and be notified whenever we go live over there. Join us. It's a good time. It lasts all day. You don't have to be there right at 11. You can join us towards the end. I can tell you that sometime around six o'clock or so, I typically try to come on live. So we actually have a chance to hang out and just chat it up before I play the final movie of the night. And I usually let the crowd vote for what that final movie is going to be. So you want to be part of that. And then on Tuesday at the same place, About 3.30 p.m., we have what we call the Monster Kid Cliffhanger Club. That's what we're calling it right now. We're showing nothing but serials. Old-school cliffhangers. We're in the middle of Burnham Up Barnes and the Vanishing Legion. What's coming up after that? Well, you just have to follow those Twitch channels to find out. What's coming up next week on the podcast? Well, I'm not 100% sure, but I have a couple of irons in the fire. I have a couple of... uh, winds out. I just hope I can reel in something before the next week's episode. I'll keep you posted, but I have a strong feeling it may have something to do with the fact that it's award season, which I want to talk about briefly. Now, I mentioned this during the conversation with Frank that his book is nominated for a Costigan Award, The Last Days of Atlantis. Now, you have to be a member of the Robert E. Howard Foundation to vote for that. However, there's something else you can vote for, and you don't have to be a member of anything to do it. And no, I'm not talking about the Wednesday's favorite animal thing, although I appreciate votes for that too, or excuse me, she does, and you don't want to disappoint her. What I'm referring to are this year's Rondo Awards. If you're on any kind of social media uh, that deals with classic horror or classic monster stuff, you know that the Rondo Hatton Classic Horror Film Awards ballot has been officially released, and it's a doozy. If nothing else, go to rondoaward.com and check out all the cool stuff that you might've missed out last year. This is a comprehensive wish list. It's like a gift book or a wish book listing of everything that you missed that's awesome in classic Monsterdom. Books, articles, columns, DVD, Blu-ray releases, commentary tracks, podcasts, movies. Just, it's all awesome. Go check that out. Being nominated is amazing and Monster Kid Radio has been nominated for best podcast and I really appreciate that. Thank you. A number of amazing podcasts have made the ballot this year. Maybe you'll find another favorite podcast. Go check out the ballot, rondoaward.com. The directions on how to vote are over there, and I'll be putting together a bumper that I'll be playing on the Twitch stream and on future episodes of Monster Kid Radio that kind of break down how to vote a little bit more. In the meantime, go check it out. You can only vote once though, so really spend some time with it. And you don't have to vote in every category. Also, there's a bunch of writing categories. You know what? Just go check it out. I think that brings us to the end of the episode, though. So I want to wrap up by saying thank you for listening. I know this week's movie was a little on the rough side. I'm going to put it behind us, think about the good stuff from it, and think about the good time that we had with Frank, and look forward to what we have coming up next week. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC. Is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Satanic Cowboy Surf Rock Mayhem. That is copyright 2022, The Void Surfers. You can find it on their upcoming album over at thevoidsurfers.bandcamp.com. Or if you happen to be in Finland where they're based, you might bump into them there if they're doing a show or anything like that. Either way, go check them out and let them know that Kid Radio sent you. My name is Derek Kim Cook. I'll talk to everybody next week. Ciao.